0: when joseph woke from sleep he did as the angel of the lord commanded him he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name jesus
1: good morning my name is will bushman and i am the middle school director here at rio um, And I might not be the face you expected to see this morning, especially when you realize the question we're going to be talking about today is why is sex such a big deal? And to be honest, I'm not the face I expected to be up here either. (laughs) But this question is a huge question. It's a question that spans generations. It starts at a very young age, especially in the culture we are a part of, and continues for the rest of our lives. And the important part about this question that's so crucial to each of us is that it's a human question. It's one that we all have to deal with in our lives. And this is one of the questions today, a topic like this is one where you're like, okay, well, I get it. We have to talk about it. Let's just get this thing going. But this morning, if what we see in the Bible is true, and this question is important, sex is a big deal, then this is something that we get to talk about this morning, And the part of this Christmas story that we just heard is one that we don't necessarily always see the drama in. It's one that we definitely don't feel how dramatic this scene would have truly been. Because imagine a 14-year-old girl betrothed to a 17-year-old carpenter. The betrothal period was one of promise and preparation. Joseph, the man, would have been preparing and proving himself as the husband he was going to be. But one day, for Joseph, all of that came crumbling down. He woke up one day and all of his future dreams that he saw with this woman, Mary, came crashing down. And you think about Joseph. He feels betrayed, he feels brokenhearted. And he probably doesn't know what to do. And then you think about Mary. Walking through her town of Nazareth, everyone knowing what has happened. And you can just imagine her walking, hearing the snickers from her peers as she walks by. Hearing the laughs of the jokes that have been told at her expense. You can just feel her walking down, having the condescending glare of the older generation burning a hole in the back of her head. Yet Mary never stops. Mary never fights the rumors. She never stops people's opinions. Mary resolves within herself to continue on through this journey. Mary never goes to the center of the town of Nazareth, stands up on a bench and says, the baby I am carrying in my womb is the savior of the world that was given to me by God. She doesn't do that because she knows it would be worthless. The supernatural aspect of that would be forgotten in the physical world. And at the center of this controversy is a question we're talking about today. Why is sex such a big deal? It's a question that knows no age, no race, no gender, no socioeconomic status, but it's one that we all have to answer. And it's a question that would have probably tore Joseph up for a long time. It would have been the question rolling around in Joseph's head day after day during this time. You can just imagine Joseph being consumed by this. You can imagine him knowing the opinion his family had, knowing the opinion his friends had, knowing the opinion of literally everyone in that town, because something like this doesn't happen in Nazareth often. And he just wants it in his own mind to be able to just be brushed aside. But you see, it's not one big overreaction in his head. He knows it's not crazy what he's feeling. He knows that Mary just didn't go out to lunch with another man. She wasn't just taking walks with another man. She wasn't just speaking to another man. But in fact, at this point in the story, before the angel came, Joseph thought Mary was having sex with another man. And Joseph knows that in his mind and in his heart, this was a big deal. Joseph might not know exactly why it's such a big deal, but he definitely knows that it is. And maybe some of us in this room are in the same place as Joseph. Maybe we know the sexual experiences from our past were a big deal in our mind and in our heart, but we did not know why. Maybe we're on the other end of that spectrum where, well, sex is just sex. It's just not that big of a deal. But my hope and prayer this morning is that as we work through what the Bible says, and the Bible has a lot to say about sex, shockingly, that we will see that the Bible, no matter how much heat it gets, talks thoroughly and decisively about the topic of sex. And here's the deal this morning. As with all of the questions we do up here, this is just the start of a conversation, I won't be able to answer all of your questions that come with it. I won't be able to answer all of your doubts. But the beautiful part about this this is that it's a jumping off point. It's a point where we get to start the conversations. And early on, I want to say I know just how difficult this topic is to talk about. I'm human too. Because we all come into this with experiences in our lives with experiences that time just won't shake. For some of us, we come into it knowing that there were things that we could not control that went on in our life. For some of us, the regret and the guilt that we have deep down is from things that happened years and years and years ago. Working through this topic today won't be easy, but I believe it will be absolutely worthwhile. So this morning, bring your baggage, bring your regrets, bring your doubts as we start our conversation on why is sex such a big deal. And it may seem backward to start this conversation by first bringing up some things in our culture that fall short to answer the question we are seeking today. Because if we're honest, all of us come and sit in this place with an idea about what we think sex is. Some of us may have made a concerted effort and figured it out, but some of us are just the products of our culture. Because our culture is constantly streaming into our minds, through its many avenues, what we should think about. Sex. Think about the movies we watch. Think about the television shows. Think about Netflix. Think about Amazon. Think about Hulu. Think about HBO. Think about the advertisements and commercials you see day after day. Even think about the literature we read. Everywhere we look, we are being taught a sexual ethic. So to begin, we're going to look at two views of culture that fall short into teaching us what sex is truly about. The first view that our culture has, we'll call it the religious perspective. And by religious perspective, I don't mean what the Bible says about sex, but I mean what religion has built up around the Bible. And this is not necessarily a popular one in our day and age, but the religious perspective says this, that sex is a necessary evil. That sex is something purely for procreation. Sex is something that we have to do in order to keep this earth and humans on it going. And this one is pretty tough to sell in our modern context. But if we're honest with ourselves, some of us may have this in our view of sex. I know I do. And it's not my parents' fault, so don't yell at them after this. But when I was in middle school and high school, this was the popular view in culture, especially the Christian culture, and especially at my school. They used what I like to call the fear tactic. During their abstinence programs, they would get up and they would say, if you have sex, you will get pregnant. And your life will be very, very different because of it. So in my middle school mind, I equated sex with a baby. Sex with a baby. If you have sex, you're going to have a child and your life is going to be different. They filled the sex talk with so much fear and shame That when you put what they said about sex up against the biblical view of sex, that it was entirely different. And I understand why they did this. I work with youth now. I understand now that I'm on the other side of the conversation how much easier this way is. It leaves no room to be misunderstood. The ends justify the means in this strategy. And while this view may look better it may look like the easier route. This view has the ability to be super destructive in how we view sex. So the idea that sex is only and keyword only for procreation falls short of what God created sex for. So this moves us to our second view that our culture has, which is much more appealing. Our, co- our culture says sex is just another natural appetite that you and I have. It's just like eating. It's just like sleeping. Today we view sex just like any other bodily activity. When you feel like doing it, you should do it. But be careful not to overdo it, as with any other appetites. We're looking for the sexual golden mean, Because sex is just something that needs to be mastered. It needs to be used responsibly in order to increase the positive results and diminish the negative consequences. That's all sex is. And this view makes perfect sense if you and I live in a world that's just physical. If all that you and I are is what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch, what we can know in our bodies, then this view is fine. But all of us know there is more to us than just the physical nature of who we are. And I actually saw a commercial this week, um, which literally equated sex and food, and shows us just how much we view this in our culture. Um, it was a Trojan commercial and it, and it said in big bold letters, sex is a sandwich. And it was trying to tell us, all sex is is just like eating a sandwich. Do it when you're hungry to be satisfied. When you want to have sex, have sex and you will be satisfied. But if we really take that idea that sex and food are similar, um, it doesn't seem to pan out. Cassius C.S. Lewis used a great illustration, I want you to hop into it with me. This is from the 40s, so imagine how much more apt it is today. So imagine you go to a foreign land, you've never been there before, you don't understand the culture, and you're looking for something to do on a Friday night. You go around asking person after person, they all say, you have to go to such and such a place. That is where all of the action is. So you listen to them, not everyone can be wrong. So you go and you show up and there's a huge line out the door and you're like, this is the place I need to be. And as you wait in line, you see person after person shell out a bunch of cash, you get inside the door, so you take it all out of your pocket and you say, if this is it, then I got to see it. And you walk into the room and the room is dark and, and you see all the chairs and people sitting facing the stage. And finally, when the stage lights come on, you see that all there is on the stage is a table with something covered up by a tablecloth. And the music starts going, the stage lights starts flashing. And in rhythm with the beat, someone slowly starts to pull back the tablecloth. And people are getting excited, they're starting to hoot and holler, they're starting to go. And eventually by the end of the song, bam, tablecloth is gone. And what is there but a roasted turkey? And you think, what kind of people would do this? What must happen to a culture in order to treat food like this? So you go back the next night, same crowd, this time it's a hot dog. You go back the next night, huge crowd, this time it's a cheeseburger. And the only thing you can think in your head about where this culture went wrong is the fact that in order to treat food like this, they must be starving. But you realize it's the exact opposite. They've not had too little food, but they've had too much food, and food has taken a place in their hearts and minds that it was never meant to fill. So step back out of that illustration and look back into our world. We know deep down that sex is not like eating a sandwich. We know deep down in our culture, and it's proven by what we do day after day, that sex holds something in our hearts that nothing else does. Think about how highly we view it in our movies, in our streaming, in our internet searches, in our literature, in our worldview, in our minds, and in our lives. And there's only one thing that we hold so highly, and that's sex. We just looked at the two views where sex falls short in our current culture. The religious perspective, which says sex is a necessary evil, and the idea that sex is just another natural appetite. So if those two fall short of the biblical view of sex, what does the Bible actually say about sex, and why is it such a big deal? The first thing the Bible says about sex is that sex procreates. The very first command God gives Adam and Eve after they were created is this. Genesis one twenty-eight says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The very first thing God did after he created Adam and Eve was give them the ability to become part of this creation process. It wasn't just to have a lot of children or to help out with the work they've been given, but it was bigger than that. Sam Cashin Smith, our pastor of education, said it best to me in reference to sex and procreation when he said this, Sex is so sacred to the Lord... That he ordained it as the means by which an eternal soul comes into being. Among all of our creative abilities, sex is the only act in which we participate in God's power to create an everlasting entity out of nothing. And that made me take a step back. I've never thought about it that way, that sex is a tool that God allows us to join in his act of creation. You and I, as finite human beings, have the ability to be part of a process that creates something beautiful out of an act and some fine-tuned biology. That's absolutely amazing. Not only that, but the Bible looks at children and smiles. The Bible holds children so highly in its view that it sets it apart from many of the cultures of this world. The psalmist says in Psalm 125 this about children, "'Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth.' Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a gift from the Lord, and sex is the means by which God gives us to be a part of that creative work. Now, if I downplayed the role of sex and procreation earlier, it was purposeful. Because although sex and procreation is a beautiful gift from God, if we just leave that on its own, it will not stand. It's one of the many puzzle pieces on why sex is such a big deal. The second part of the biblical worldview about sex is that sex delights. Sex was actually created for our delight. It is a joyous act that God has given to us as humans. And the Bible speaks a lot about this. And if you feel weird at this moment, it's because you grew up in the religious perspective with me. And we see it all throughout the scriptures we see that a whole book, the Song of Solomon, was given to show the beauty of sex between a man and a woman. In the classiest way possible, it shows us that sex is a joyous act that God has given us to be a part of. But now we'll turn to a verse in Proverbs. Proverbs is from the wisdom literature. It's a book that is given to lead and to guide our lives. And listen to what Proverbs 5.18 says. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I mean, that's a verse to be memorized. Yeah, you can laugh. It's okay. It's a verse to be ingrained in your heart. That verse is in the Bible to show us that God is a God who is not ashamed of what he created. God is a God who is not ashamed that his people take part in what he created for their good and for their delight. And if we stop there at those two views of biblical sex, we have just what the culture has given us already. We have procreation, and we have for our delight. But here's where the Bible and culture become distinctly different in how it views sex. And this answers our question, why is sex such a big deal? The third thing the Bible says about sex is that sex... Unifies, Because sex is so close to who we are as humans, it has the ability to permeate every aspect of our life. It's a physical act. It's an emotional act. It's a spiritual act. This is why when two people come together during sex, something greater happens than just the physical act of it. The purpose of sex in the Bible is seen to us in Genesis 2.24. It says this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sex was given us for us to unify two people into one flesh. One flesh is not just a physical act, but it's complete personal union. Think about it. Sex creates a deep intimacy, a oneness, a communion that two people share as one person. Again, sex is not just physical. It's emotional. It's spiritual. It is two eternal souls coming together in a powerful act. And think about this. Sex is God's ordained way of non-verbally telling another human being, I belong completely and wholly to you. But here's the deal. Whatever happens at the physical level in unity, must also happen at every other level. Socially, legally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, or else it is broken. Because think about what is being communicated to someone. If you say, I want the sex I have with you to be purely physical. I want my physical nakedness to be the only vulnerability of mine I have to share with you. When the sex is over, I want you to have no claim on my life, no obligation. I want to have no uh, emotional obligation to you, no spiritual obligation to you, no social obligation to you. And this is true, whether you remember it this way or not. Remember the first time you've had sex. Whether you were married or not, you felt married afterwards. You might have been far from marriage legally, but physically, emotionally, socially, you felt that way. That's when you woke up the next day, it felt like such a monstrosity to you when that man or woman you had it with had zero obligation to you in your life. Because unification on only a physical level is broken. And this is why God sets boundaries for sex. When God says sex is only for a man and a woman... In the context of a marriage relationship, it is for our good. Because sex was defined and created for only that context, and anything outside of it is to break it. Let's give an example that's not so personally invasive in our lives like sex is. Imagine I stroll up to the gas station with my super sweet Ford Escape. And I roll up, and I pass by the unleaded gas that was created to go into my car, but I hit that green handle and put diesel right inside. My car wasn't created for that. My engine wasn't created to use that. Just like sex is not created for people outside of a marriage relationship. When sex happens outside of a marriage relationship, it distorts the order of operations. I'll use my own marriage as an example. Don't worry, it's not going to be weird. Relax. Everyone calm down. Morgan, my wife, fully approved this whole section. She did. About 18 months ago, on that stage behind me, I married Morgan. And on that stage, in front of hundreds of people, my life became completely and utterly vulnerable to Morgan. The vows I made obligated me to her and her to me. We said on that stage that day that from here on out, nothing is purely ours alone, but we will share between the two of us. Socially, fiscally, legally, we became unified that day. Then later on, we became physically unified through sex. The vulnerability that we shared during sex is a beautiful reminder of the vows we took that day. Because that's what sex is. It continues to be that over and over again for the rest of our lives. The vows that made us vulnerable and unified are ratified and remembered during sex. And this is why sex is such a big deal. It's not like eating a sandwich. It's not just to create cute little babies, but as a tool for two individual people to become one flesh. The physical unification through sex, reaching the same level of unity at every other level. That's how it was supposed to be. And this morning, I know this is not all of our stories. I understand that. I can say for certain in my life and for most of your lives, we have used sex in one way or another that has broken it. And sexual brokenness is a huge category. It includes sex outside of marriage, pornography, adultery, and it gets even more complex for some of us when we understand that the sexual brokenness we have in our life was forced on us by someone else. And the difficult part about this conversation for you and I is we can't have it in a vacuum. We can't just leave all of our sexual brokenness outside and come and sit down and have a nice conversation. but we come into it as human beings with a history, good or bad. But here's the truth of the gospel this morning. Jesus, the baby that we celebrated coming into the world five days ago today, grew up. He didn't stay a baby. And he did something. Jesus chose, in Matthew 1 we see this through his genealogy. Jesus chose to put sexually broken people into his family lineage. And not just one, but a lot of them. And Jesus told us by that, through that subtle text, that even sexually broken people can be a part of his family today. Think about Abraham. Abraham had sex with his maidservant when he did not trust that God would give him offspring. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but instead got tricked into marrying Leah, and then he married them both. Then we think about Tamar. Later down on in the line, Tamar tricks her father-in-law into having sex with her and becomes pregnant with his twins. Tamar's in the line of Jesus. Rahab, a prostitute, is in the line of Jesus, and she was also crucial in the plot to bring down Jericho. David, the adultery-committing king of Israel, is a man after God's own heart. He's not a man after God's own heart because of his sexual brokenness, but how he came back to God during that sexual brokenness. And think about the story we started our time with. Do you think the rumors or the snickers or the jokes stopped when Mary gave birth to Jesus? I doubt that. Jesus himself grew up in a place where people all around him thought that his family was sexually broken. We don't just see that through his lineage, but we see that through his life. Jesus did three years of public ministry here on earth. And in that time, he met and he cared and he loved sexually broken people. I think of the story in John 4, the woman at the well. This woman at the well had been isolated from everyone in her community. She was walking to the well at the hottest point of the day alone. And we learn that's because of her sexual brokenness. Jesus says to her, you've had five husbands, and the one you currently live with now is not your husband. We learn that she was seeking sex to satisfy her desires, and Jesus showed her that sex cannot satisfy those. Next, and my favorite one, is in Luke 7. Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the top religious characters in the day. And they're having a nice dinner, and Boom, through the door walks a prostitute. The horror on their faces must have been wild. And this prostitute enters. And she goes right to the feet of Jesus. She takes out her perfume, a tool of her trade, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair and she wipes Jesus' feet clean. A prostitute did for Jesus that day a thing of honor that no one else in that room did when he walked through their door. And Jesus looks at this woman, and he forgives her, not just of all the sins outside of her sexual brokenness, but for those as well. And he comes to us with the same offering this morning, because Jesus, the baby born in Bethlehem, was born to die. He lived perfectly, yet he was arrested. He withstood an unfair trial, yet He was sentenced to death, and he hung on a cross, and he hung in nakedness. He hung in a vulnerable state, but through his nakedness and vulnerability on that cross, you and I receive something. You and I, because of what he did on the cross that day in his nakedness, in his vulnerability, get to be unified with Christ forever if we believe. Because the sex we have here on earth with our spouse in the context of marriage is a signpost. And think about what a signpost really is. When you're on a road trip with your family, you don't stop at the sign that says 50 miles to Atlanta. You get all the kids out of the car, you snap a pic and say, we did it. No, it's a signpost pointing you towards an eventual destination. And that's what sex on this earth is. It's a signpost of the eternal unity we will have with Jesus one day because of what he did for us on the cross. So the big deal about sex on this earth is that it unifies us to our spouse, but the bigger deal in all of eternity is that sex is a signpost of the unity we will have with Christ forever. So we have a God who created sex to be a big deal, and that's absolutely beautiful. With all that said... If the idea that sex is truly a big deal is something you believe this morning, here's a question. What in your life is sexually broken and you need to bring to Christ not only for forgiveness, but for Him to change? Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we come to you, Lord, as people that know we're broken with how we view sex. Lord, but we come to you now humbly at your feet, just like that woman in Luke 7 asking for forgiveness, Lord, and knowing that you give it to us freely and openly. Lord, we just pray this morning that your spirit would meet us where we're at. If it's just the first step in this question, then let that be all. Lord, we come to you now thankful for who you are, thankful that your word teaches us this, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, and we ask for your patience with us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.